0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and today we're listening to the second half of my conversation with Dr. Bijan Nimadi, President and Chief Scientist at TELUS One Scientific and former scientist and origins researcher at Lockheed and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He worked on the Space Interferometer Mission and has expertise in astrophysics and the early origins of the universe. We now rejoin the conversation with Dr. Namati sharing how he became involved with one of the most well-known intelligent design documentaries, *The Privileged Planet*. Now let's go back to what's this uh, mid to late '90s? You're in California. You're working well, JPL. You're at JPL now, right?
1: Yeah, uh, in the mid '90s, I was uh, no. At that point, I think I was still. At- Are you still at Lockheed? Lockheed. Well, I guess in 97 was the first time I set foot at JPL Okay. okay. and uh, as a Lockheed person. And then at that point, you know, I was working for Lockheed. So I was trying to help Lockheed get the contract to build the interferometer for JPL. Right, and we succeeded. And, we got just
0: around the same time that you get involved with? I'm trying to remember when when you got involved with uh, Privileged Planet was later. So
1: yeah, 2003. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, I. Um. Right. So, so 97. You know, first time I'm getting involved. You know, with the Origins program. By 99, I'm kind of enmeshed in, uh, in a testbed, a technology testbed demonstrator for the space interferometry mission. At jet Propulsion Lab as a Lockheed person and enjoying myself, but by two thousand and one, I had decided you know I think I'm just gonna become a JPL person and so I thanked my friends at Lockheed who had made this possible but uh, but left and, and joined JPl and I enjoyed you know uh sixteen very happy years at Jpl mm-hmm. uh, till till I uh, decided to move to Alabama and was a professor here for five years until I just started this company this year. But, yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. cause I
0: remember if I'm remembering right, you were at JPL when the privileged planets yeah. came out, right? Yeah. I think you were listed as JPL. Okay. So tell us how you got involved with that project with Jay and with Guillermo.
1: Yeah. So there's a funny story to this, which is that uh, just a year or two before it, Discovery Institute put out a, a documentary called icons of evolution based on Jonathan Wells book which is a wonderful book, uh, in that uh, documentary, there is a point where the narrator says something like, as a matter of fact, many scientists uh, are, are skeptical of the Darwinian picture. And as it does that, the, the documentary basically is flashing the image of a, a one-page ad at the New, in the New York Times that was all of us who had signed our names.
0: Mm-hmm. Descent from Darwin list. Descent yeah. from Darwin.
1: Yeah. So so all these names are floating by rapidly in front of the camera as this you know, in this graphic in the in the documentary. And it finally just settles on some random one last name. <laughs> and it's my name. <laughs> and so it's Bijan de you know, Jet Propulsion Lab. So somebody at JPL by the name of David Coppage, Mm, who was involved in Unlocking the Mystery of Life, which is a spectacular documentary that had just come out, which was so exciting. Uh, He sees this name and sends me an email saying, hey, uh, you want to have lunch? And so we discussed, you know, he discussed, you know, what are your views? You know, I saw your name on that thing. And he said, well, you know, in the future, we may be doing another documentary like Okay. Unlocking, which I thought, you know, I was honored to be asked that because yeah. I had the very highest esteem for Unlocking. I think Unlocking was really blew the doors off of uh, anything, you know, just it was a really spectacular documentary. Now, since then, of course, there are many, but it was really a, a very excellent one.
0: It, it was. That one is one that's close to my heart as well. It had a big impact on me.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah, I said I'd be honored to be part of that. And I didn't know Guillermo Gonzalez very well at the time. I think mm-hmm. it just so happened by accident that Guillermo and I had both submitted articles to a journal called Facts for Faith that was uh, Hugh Ross's journal at those years. And it was from different scientists or you know themselves, you know, talking about things that point to a creator, things that bolster one's faith in God. And I had, in fact, written a rather long and kind of like I, I now look at it, I feel like it was kind of too long, <laughs> long article on interferometry in Baxford Faith and the search for planets or like, like the Earth. But in there was a short but really kind of exciting article by Guillermo. And it was, I think, I should ask him, but I think it was his first time he publicly had mm-hmm. mentioned his ideas about. The universe being also, find, you know, basically specially tuned for discovery, right. which is the core idea of the privileged planet. Yeah. So there it was in that same journal. But, you know, that that came out like in ninety nine. But it was like in 2002 that I heard, you know, there or three that, that I heard that they were doing this video based on this book. And I had seen I had seen Guillermo's book and I had been kind of reading through it. And I wanted to read it well. So it was taking me an awful long time. It's a, it's a very dense, but very good book. So anyway, we sort of met in the course of that documentary. And it became a friendship. And in fact, Guillermo now is my colleague at my company. So we oh. both work at TELUS One. And uh, we have lots of fun because we found we have so many things in common. We both went to the University of Washington. You know, we both are from other countries originally, you know, there's just an amazing number of parallels in our in our lives, which is very fun for both of us. But uh, yeah, so that well, that's great. Well, t- tell
0: me about what you're doing at your current company, if if that's okay.
1: Yeah, at uh, Telus One right now, we're we do a bunch of different things, but uh, some of them involve contracts that we have with the Jet Propulsion Lab, NASA, to uh, participate in the final stages of preparations of an instrument that will go on the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. This telescope is named after Nancy Grace Roman, who was a pioneer in the area of space telescopes uh, and Mm -hmm. persuaded NASA, I think, to build what is now called the Hubble Space Telescope. But anyway, uh, the Roman Telescope, as we call it, is going to be launched maybe 2026. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but I think it's around that somewhere around that time. And it will have uh, two major instruments uh, one instrument is a dark energy instrument. It's an energy, uh, it's an instrument called the wide field. It's, it's called the wide field instrument. And its purpose is to make images across wide fields across the entire celestial sphere mm-hmm. uh, to look for evidences of, of what, what the mechanisms are for dark energy. But the instrument I'm working on is called the coronagraph instrument. And this is a, very special device that essentially can, you can point a telescope at a star and when it's working correctly, it will block out the star, but not block out the planets around it. It might seem simple because if if you saw, like, for example, if you were looking at Jupiter, you know, in your telescope, if you saw the moons near Jupiter, you could just imagine you could just put a dime <laughs> in front of, you know, the, you know in front of Jupiter or something, that's very easy. But when we're talking about these stars, we don't actually see their true size uh, by, you know, in in an angular sense. We see the diffraction of Mm. the star. And that diffracted image of the star is so broad that it's swallowed up the planets uh, by a factor of, you know, uh, millions. And so Mm. you have to dig, uh, you know, so, so in terms of technical speak, uh, you know, we talk about signal to noise ratio or SNR. Right. You know, the signal is one part in a million and you're trying to, and the noise is the million. And so you have to come up with very fancy techniques of manipulating the electromagnetic wave that is the light to allow you to, to preferentially kill off the starlight so you can see the planet light. It is very, very cool stuff. And, and JPL does very cool stuff everywhere. And this is another one. And so, yeah. So that's so. Is that's this kind of considered
0: part. the next stage in the exoplanet hunt?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are yeah. you know transit spectroscopy you know is big and exciting, but direct imaging and spectroscopy is where you're essentially getting the directly the light from the planet, like this. That is the the big big next step. And in fact, Roman the Roman chronograph is a precursor to the big mission that the Decadal Committee on Astronomy and Astrophysics that just put out its report, the 2020 report. That report calls for a telescope and coronagraph or another system is called a star shade. Uh, but between the two, something that should be able to detect Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones of nearby sun-like stars.
0: With direct and, imaging, I uh, mean rather than transit with direct, direct imaging.
1: Yeah, yeah okay. with direct imaging, exactly. Okay, good. And so I'm involved in that too at JPL. The exoplanet imaging and spectroscopy has sort of become my life uh, for the past oh, five, six years and just amazing people I get to work with. And uh, it's really exciting stuff uh, at this point.
0: Well, so so this is interesting because, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take a side road here for a minute. But I want to bring this back to the privileged planet because, of course, part of the argument, as you mentioned, the critical planet, uh, the privileged planet, the critical core argument. Was the correlation between habitability and discoverability? But there's also sort of the general list of conditions, if you will, the fine tuning of our planet for habitability, and so we're now up to what almost six thousand, more than six thousand exoplanets that have been found,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and as we kind of look at that, again, it's a small sample size to be sure, but it's more than it was back then. I think 96 was what the first, first exoplanet. So, you know, we've gone from nothing up to uh, 6,000 or more in 20, 20 some years, 25 years. So as you kind of look back and, and from your perspective, Bijan, and kind of look at that and say, okay, we've now got a sample size that's in the thousands at least. Is there anything that we can start uh, tentatively saying about Earth's position and and Earth's uniqueness, or what what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, back in ninety five and ninety six, when the first discovery was made, uh, the first reaction was that well, planets are going to be ubiquitous, and uh, we're going to find that we're very common. And now, as we look at the characteristics of the planets that we see, and in fact, the characteristics of the stars that they they that they orbit, mm-hmm. uh, we see that very very few. Very few come anywhere near the characteristics that we have and need to have for life. A lot of the uh, planetary systems that are discovered are much closer to their host star than uh, Mercury.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Mercury is a hot planet. So you get catatelog. Either you have these eccentric orbits. You know, you mm-hmm. have like a gas giant with a highly eccentric orbit, which is wreaking havoc. And that gas giant will eventually migrate in into a tight circular orbit. But by the time it's done that uh, over the course of the, uh, you know, millions or billions of years that it takes to do that, it has knocked out nearly everything from its mm. path. So by the time you see these hot Jupiters, you don't see anything else around that planetary system. Then you've got other cases where that hasn't happened. But a lot of these planets, again, are, you know, around. Well, the most ubiquitous stars are the M dwarfs, for one thing. Right, and these are cool stars, which means that their habitable zone, if you could call it that, where liquid water could exist at some place on the planet, is actually they're so close in that you get this tidal locking effect. The planet's uh, spin gets synchronized with its orbital uh, frequency, and so that one side of the planet is always uh, being observed. It looks at the the hot, you know, being star. Baked, yeah, all that moisture evaporates, and then. Um, Essentially, settles it's on the other side, it's, which is a cold trap, and so it's a very inhospitable. And also, those end dwarfs—they, they're—you know—they have other aspects that just makes them uh, not good hosts. So then you ask, well, okay, what kind of other stars? Well, th- there are G stars. There are G stars like ours, but they're not very, very common. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these stars are in binary systems. So, so you, you know, binaries tend to be unstable. Uh, and uh, for orbits for the planets. So, so you really want, you know, the 3% of the stars that are G G dwarfs. And now you start saying, okay, I've got my G, G dwarf and it's not a binary. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, stable and energetic and all these good things. Now I need a terrestrial planet. Well, yeah, I need a terrestrial planet with a gas giant that is not in a, you know, an eccentric orbit, orbit, but it's very low eccentricity. Well, if we look at the data on these thousands of RV radio velocity planets that we've seen over, since, you know, 25 plus years, low eccentricity, large orbital radius, gas giants, which are very beneficial, are very mm-hmm. rare, are very rare. And so you, you've got this, like, this condition here on what the gas giants should be doing. Then you got the condition of what the planets should have, you know, terrestrial planet, should have an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere, and it should have a, a magnetic field, and therefore it has to have uh, sort of a large amount of radio, uh, heavy radio, uh, radioisotopes that can essentially give it that dynamo effect that creates the magnetic field. It should have tectonic activity. And you put all this stuff together, and so you've got all these requirements that are not correlated, You know, if they were correlated, you say, okay, if you get this, you get that and that and that, and that probably is high. But if they all have to be independently true, and a lot of these things are independent, then uh, the requirements space, you know, the the, the allowable space becomes very tiny. And, in fact, then, you know, we basically have not seen an Earth twin yet, you know. Would we ever, I would say, the search goes on, and and, and we our few thousand becomes hundreds of thousands or millions. Eventually, we'll see an terrestrial Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone of a Sun-like star. But what about its magnetism? What about you know the tectonic activity? What about yeah, the carbon sure, cycle? Yeah. What you know all this other stuff? And so when you put all of those together. Conservative estimates say that you would not expect one system like ours in thousands of Milky Way galaxies. So, you know, it's far from the picture we had in
0: 95. Yeah, it's interesting because when the planet search really started picking up, the exoplanet search, and I, I used to, I'm kind of a nerd, so I used to actually get on the website every day and follow, you know, what's the number yeah. today? You know, how many have been identified? How many are candidates? <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, there was a lot of noise, of course, in the popular press about there's so many planets that we're inevitably going to find something. And it's just been recently, at least in the popular press, that I've started hearing a few comments in a few articles saying, well, may, maybe it's, maybe Earth's pretty unique. <laughs> maybe it's going to be a little bit harder to find. Now, we're not saying that there's no other planet like Earth in the in the universe, right? But, yeah. but I think you yeah. have to kind of be a little bit sanguine about the, the probabilities. And I, I think your point about the independence of these conditions is a really critical one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you didn't have that it would be a very easy, it kind of goes to, uh, you know, we see this independence requirement, its, it's importance, a lot of places in ID. For example, when we talk about in, in Darwinian process, uh, you know, Michael Behe talks about processes that are evolutionary. And uh, so when you, for example, you get uh, resistance to uh, bacterial resistance to uh, antibacteria, how many mutations does it get to do that? And are those independent? If one mutation necessarily caused the other, well, that would be easy. But if they have to be independent, that's one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good point. So let me shift just a little bit and ask you this. Have you had any experiences uh, where you've been challenged or maybe even attacked personally or professionally in your career due to your support of intelligent design?
1: Uh, No, I, you know, I was more on the engineering side of things. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was sort of the straddling the science and engineering line. And I still do in my work that I did, uh, you know, with NASA and JPL and really enjoyed working with my colleagues. I we I knew that they had different perspective, but we really all worked together to try to make this technical thing happen But it did occur once uh, where I think it was related to the Privilege Planet documentary. In the early, as soon as it came out, there was going to be a screening. I think that was going to happen at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And so we get this email, not even from JPL internally. It was from somebody in the American Physical Society, Um, some secretary. She sent this email saying, Hey, um, this this event is happening, and this, you know, look out. This is a creationist film. You guys were duped, you know, that that got interviewed there. And please let the Smithsonian know that you, you don't support this video. And so this came to me and a bunch of colleagues. And you know, I was the only one that was pro-ID, as far as I remember, in in that group that was from JPL of the four of us. Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, you know, look at what, what they're doing, you know. So I, I thought, you know what, I'll do? I will plant a flag. So I sent an email to all the recipients. I CC'd everybody. That was, i have gotten uh-huh. the original email. And I said, look, this video uh, is about our place in the cosmos. That's how it was advertised. You know, when we were told the video was going to be done, it was about our place in the cosmos. Yeah. That is what it's about. It doesn't quote anybody as saying, something that they don't believe it's not like it edited anybody out mm-hmm. you know they say x and they 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 show this person saying not x everybody is saying what they believe so in that sense there's nothing wrong and you know are we now going to be you know discriminating what viewpoint are we participating with so i said basically i, I don't see how this this is even ethical for you guys to be doing this to mm-hmm. be asking such a thing and i just planted that flag there and i just didn't. I don't know. It was kind of momentary, kind of valor, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, I didn't really quite know what I was getting myself into. I just thought, you know, sometimes somebody's got to say something, yeah. And I didn't really con- suffer almost any consequences except that one senior scientist who um, was in the documentary and we had been pretty friendly basically stopped talking to me for years, um, mm. basically. He would just not, he would disappoint me. But compared to what price others have paid, I have not really had to suffer at all. Well, that's good. That's
0: great. <laughs> well, hey, I know we're getting toward the top of the hour here, but what? let me ask you uh, two, two final questions. One, what advice would you give to someone who might be sitting on the fence about intelligent design? I know you've kind of had a journey in your own right, but what would you tell somebody who's kind of wondering about this?
1: I would say for the... If you can, uh, avoid thinking about what will so and so say or think about me if I espouse these ideas. Just immerse into the argument. Follow Mm. the argument as a philosopher, as a scientist, as a thinking person. And it's not hard to evaluate it. Like I'm reading this book, let's say, uh, you know, uh, Darwin on Trial or Signature in the Cell or The Privileged Planet. Okay read it on its own merits, and compare it to other books that you would have found impressive. Is yeah. it lacking technical merit? Is it lacking philosophical rigor? And what I have found is that on the ID side, we always have to work extra hard to keep our technical points nuanced, our reasoning more careful, because you know we are not the mainstream. And it's a privilege not to be in mainstream. Maybe if we were in the mainstream, we'd get sloppy because you know when I was at JPL I would go to a lot of colloquiums and such and sometimes the speaker was sort of from an anti not, not that they would pick on ID per, per se but it was from the other side sort of a materialist view mm-hmm. and when i was when it was done i thought you know the content of this talk was actually really light it yeah. was just somebody talking about a few things that everybody else is going to nod and we're all going to like sort of uh, pat each other on the back Whereas if I had a uh, you know typical you know ID proponent here, they would have done a ton more homework. The talk would be much more dense with very interesting stuff. I guess I would say that I I would challenge anyone who's on the fence. Look at the arguments. Look at them not from with a fear of what so and so might think, but just look at the argument yourself and compare it with the counter argument. Mm-hmm. And I think, hands down, the ID arguments will hold their own quite well.
0: Excellent. Well said. Well said. So finally, Bijan, if you had to pick one primary aspect of the natural world that really brings home the evidence for design to you, what would that be? And, and if you want to mention a, sort of an intellectual one or a spiritual one or both, that's fine. But what what brings yeah. home the evidence for design to you? Uh,
1: you know, if I might, I, I could say, first of all, In philosophy, uh, I'll I'll go to to, to a science, uh, sort of a scientific one and a philosophical one. The scientific, uh, the philosophical one is that nearly every theory, every theory that we encounter in science, if it's materialistic, has a form of reductionism in it. And Mm -hmm. a reductionism is when you say that our experience in the universe is nothing but, and then you fill in the blank. You know, the idealists reduce to the mind, the materialists reduced to matter and energy. The materialists kind of have the 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 day right now in our in the world we live in where the de facto philosophy of every uh, you know science department is gonna be some form of materialism. But yeah but reductionism of any kind has a self-destructive aspect to it, and that's been well covered by really good philosophers and there's a, a at the popular level there's a book by Nancy Piercy called finding Truth that does this beautifully but the self-destructive aspect is that any reductionist philosophy tends to be globalist about it and as such it applies it also to the human being and when it does that it does that also to the human mind and so when you apply reductionism to the human mind you would say well the human mind is nothing but you know mm. as So many pounds of, you know, thinking flesh or whatever. And it's just, you know, synapses that are firing electrically and it's all product of evolution or whatever. But then the moment you do that, what happens is then you you take away from the mind uh, the recognition that the mind can access truth that is not dictated by whatever reductionist forces you have posited. Exactly. So if you say it's all electrons and you know uh, electromagnetic interactions, well the fact then that, that I came up with the theory that there is only electromagnetic interaction is also an electromagnetic interaction and therefore not actually accessing truth. yeah And so that's how it self-destructs to me that is a really powerful one because the only way out of this this vicious circle is to have a non-reductionist philosophy and the only way that you can have a palatable, non-reductionist philosophy is to accept that there is a transcendent creator in the universe. That is the that is sort of the inevitable place you end up with. When you try to do with, away with the creator, it's very difficult to sell a multi-aspectual universe. So you then reduce it to one aspect, but when you do that, you undercut the theory itself because it self-destructs when it comes to the human mind. Mm-hmm. That is a very powerful thing. And the second One I would say is just, uh, you know, in the scientific fields, if we look at biology, thanks to actually a lot of our friends at Discovery uh, and and in the ID movement, you know, we have a lot better appreciation of what really makes a biological being. You know, what is the most fundamental thing that characterizes a biological being is, in fact, organization. The late uh, Robert Rosen describes this formally in a book called Life Itself. Uh, where he says, basically, that organization is what you have when you have a system composed of components. And the components have function. And the function of a component is known from seeing what the behavior of the system is when you take that component out compared to when the component was in. Mm-hmm. So you somebody who's never seen a car engine uh, opens the hood of a car the first time And sees a distributor cap there. And back when they had those and says, I wonder what this does. And they pull it out and the engine runs, stops running. Or they seize the sparks, but you know, the engine quickly goes, ah, so it needs this. It needs this. And that's the function of this thing. So the idea that organization characterizes most deeply what biology is, the fact that it's a design system is sort of a, it's a very difficult to think to overcome. Uh, If you wanted to say there is no design, because the only place we see this kind of design is the minds of engineers. Mm -hmm. But as Michael Denton says, what we see in biology is what we just like what's in the minds of the engineers. But it's not. It's what Denton calls transcendent design. It is. a We see that it looks designed, but it looks designed beyond anything we could have designed that we can't even, you know, get to the depths of this level of design. So, yeah, so biology is really um, – and, of course, there is physics. with the fine-tuning and astronomy, and we, we covered some of that with the with the exoplanets. So there's a lot – everywhere you look, really, <laughs> it's <pretty laughs>
0: amazing. Excellent. Well, Bishan, thank you so much for being with us today to both share your story and to help us understand a little bit more about why sharing this evidence for design matters and pressing forward with intelligent design and following the evidence where it leads.
1: It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank
0: you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To hear more inspirational stories from those involved in putting forward the remarkable evidence for design in nature, join us again here at ID the Future or on our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. And as always, consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com
1: and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.